0: Amen, amen, let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in the reality that Christ is alive, and he's sitting at your right hand, and as we are praying to you, he is praying for us, and so Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to focus our minds and quiet our hearts, help your servant. Bring the message that he believes you have for us this day. And we've come to hear from you. For it is Easter and we are an Easter people. Father, we love you. We want you to hear that from our lips this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his glory alone. Amen. And amen. Let me ask you, church, have you... Ever had a, an experience in your life where you said to yourself, what in the world just happened? You ever had that experience? Anybody? Nobody? Yeah, where you go, what in the world? What is going on? What just happened? On Thursday night, I took my wife, Cheryl, to the airport. Um, our daughter, Riley, who lives in Sydney, Australia, is having a baby next week. And so uh, Mimi, Grandma, has to go. And so she's been planning this trip for uh, many months, and uh, all the accoutrements that go on uh, go with that. And uh, of course, Australia has a very strict uh, COVID policy. And uh, so we had all of our ducks in a row and all the tests, and we headed down to the airport on Thursday night. And we got there and uh, checked in, and during the check-in, the nice lady at the desk said, "Uh, I'm not going to be able to allow you on the airplane. And uh, we were like, what? And so she proceeded to tell us that uh, my wife's COVID test was 25 hours old, and it had to be 24 hours or less. And so she could not get on the airplane, and uh we were just flabbergasted as you can imagine and my daughter's expecting her the next day in australia and uh we begged and pleaded and i think the airline frankly had oversold the flight and they were looking for people reasons not to let people on now don't ask me the airline i'm not going to tell you the airline i'll just say there's a lot of air in canada and uh, (laughs) and uh, so she couldn't get on the flight and uh, we drove home on Thursday night and had to let my daughter and son-in-law know in Australia that she, Mimi's not coming just right yet. And uh, we're like, what in the world, all the planning, what just happened? Like, and, you know, my wife, she was at the verge of tears and so upset, and it was crazy. Now, she did get away last night, praise God. So she's about, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, yes. Yes. It's always interesting when you clap when a woman leaves her husband for a month. <laughs> it's interesting. Okay. Okay. Good Friday is what we experience Thursday night ad infinitum. When the sun sets on Good Friday, everybody's in a fog and saying, What in the world just happened? What has happened? The world's orientation changed. And from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning, the hearts of all of those people involved in this story were recalculating, trying to figure out what happened and how do we make sense of this. But the sun rises on Sunday morning, and they can see much clearer, amen? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 24. What I wanna do this morning is just a little different approach maybe than what I typically do when I teach. We're gonna read this Easter Sunday passage, and then I want to visit a few people and places on Easter Sunday morning and see how things have gotten a lot clearer and hopefully, maybe you'll find yourself in the story in some way. But Luke chapter 24, hear the word of the Lord. We're going to begin to read at verse number one. But on the first day of the week, of course, that's Sunday, at early dawn, they... Now, who are they? They are Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. That's who it's, we're talking about when we say they. They went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They prepared spices because they expected to honor the body of Jesus and to find it exactly where it was laid, which we read about back in chapter 23. Verse number 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. I think I mentioned a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago. Let us be clear, the stone was not removed to let Jesus out. The stone was removed to let the onlookers in. Jesus didn't need the stone moved so he could get out. The stone was moved so they could see in. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, because this is what always happens when heaven explodes onto earth. Remember the first birth announcement. The angels say to the shepherds, be not what? Afraid, because the glory of heaven is overwhelming. It's majestic. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Now, why do these men bring this up? Because he wants to, these, these angels, these angelic beings, want to remind them and us that God always keeps his word. Always. Always. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Number ten, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That's typically dumb men. The women made the connection, but they didn't. Here's a little side message, men. A little Easter side message, no additional charge. Listen to your wife. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but Peter, listen, verse 12. Listen to this verse. It's an important verse. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And we're going to come back to that. So with that as our backdrop, let us now look back on some of those Friday people and places and see how their situations have cleared up a little bit on Easter Sunday. Let's talk first, friends, about Mary, mother of Jesus. Remember, this is the woman that receives that marvelous angelic announcement concerning a baby that she is carrying A baby who is destined to be king, but the kingship is more than a little iffy, isn't it, as he hangs on a cross on Friday, and makes a declaration of departure by committing his, her care to one of his best friends. That's what a king does? But I can't help but think that over the weekend, you know, Easter Saturday. Mary rolls around her own words in that wonderful song of praise we call the Magnificat, where she says, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Now, would that be true if her son was murdered? She draws that conclusion because an angel told her that your baby is the Son of God, and up until Good Friday, that angel, everything the angel said, seemed to be really spot on. But things sure have changed. But now, friends, on Sunday morning, an empty tomb confirms to Mary, my boy was, and more importantly, is the Son of God, because he's overcome death. And she draws that conclusion. And the words of the angel to Mary, you have found favor with God, is not simply, listen carefully, is not simply because Jesus was born to Mary. She is blessed because Jesus has died for Mary, He's died for His own mother. It's an amazing story. Mary, Mary, maybe more than anybody else on Easter Sunday, grasps the greatness of the love of God, doesn't she? Why? Because she knows, as an earthly mother, the magnitude of the Heavenly Father's love for her, that He would hold back His hand and let the murder of His Son take place to redeem people who don't even care about Him. Isn't that incredible? Apparently it isn't. I thought it was. You see, he died for you, even though you didn't at one point in your life even care that he did. Well, what about the love for the son? Well, the father knows the son's eternal, and he'll return back to the father. But without the sacrifice the son makes, we're absolutely, you and I, we're without hope. Amen? We're without hope. And a risen Jesus means hope. A risen Jesus means he is king of an earthly new dominion. Entirely new. A risen Jesus changes everything for Mary and for all of us. Now, one of our Friday folks living in a weekend fog is a guy named Pilate. Do you remember Pilate? From Good Friday? You remember Pilate? Pilate. Politician, powerful politician, placed in a really difficult position. Forced to decide between the wishes of his wife and the desires of the people. Can you imagine? Good luck, Pilate. And he tries to satisfy the people and, listen, his own conscience by not making a decision. Well you, you you folks go ahead and do what you want but I don't agree and I'm washing my hands figuratively and literally of the whole thing. But a pro- the problem with that is and we all know this that a decision not to make a decision is still what? Still a decision, right? The decision to let someone else make a decision means you ultimately have the responsibility for the decision. So by default, it then is, in fact, your decision. Maybe not by way of process, but certainly you own it by way of outcome. Poor Pilate. He makes the decision as the highest-ranking Roman official of the occupation. He actually has to give consent for a crucifixion. And the governor, as was the custom at the feast of Passover, would release a criminal, right? One criminal. We know that. And the night of Jesus' trial, they had this really notorious guy, Barabbas, and Pilate, not wanting to be in the middle of all this, between his wife and the people and all of that, He asks the crowd, hey, should we release Barabbas? Matthew records, Pilate knew that Jesus was in this predicament purely out of envy, that the religious elite simply wanted to literally kill the competition. They didn't want to be in competition with Jesus. Surely they would want Jesus released and not Barabbas. And Pilate, he's a lot of things, but he's no fool. And what he actually says to the crowd, listen to this. Listen carefully to what he says to the crowd in Matthew chapter 27. He said, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, listen, who is the Christ? That's an important distinction. Jesus, who is the Christ. Christ signifies His office as anointed Savior and alludes to His spiritual qualifications of being able to save His people. And surely if the crowds had that realization, right, in their minds, they would want Jesus to live. And maybe Pilate could dodge the decision and ultimately the responsibility. But like every single crowd... Did you, have you ever noticed that crowds never make up their own minds? They consume the opinions of others. Let me just say this to you this morning, especially younger people. Don't let the crowd in our world today think for you. Don't let people who entertain you think for you. They've got no business thinking for you, simply because they entertain you. And finally, Pilate asks the crowd for their wish, and it's the release of a murderer and to go ahead and crucify the Christ, the Messiah. They preferred a man of violence, a murderer, over a man of love. And poor Pilate, he makes this final, ineffectual plea What evil has he done? But the decision has been sealed, and the way of the cross is confirmed. Theologian Leon Morris says this, a governor who was not thinking clearly and who was ready to take the easy way out, he tried to evade accountability for a decision that in the last resort was his and his alone. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he says. You see to it, right? My experience, friends, has been the easiest way out of a destination-setting moment in life usually leads back in. A shaded truth is in fact a lie. And the most devious lies, the most devious lies are in some cases actually largely truth. And Pilate was stuck in the realities of Good Friday and the regret that so quickly rose in him. And here's what we can see clearly now on Sunday morning that Pilate could not see on Friday afternoon. In spite of Pilate sentencing Jesus to death, in so doing, listen to this, he actually makes a decision that would allow for Pilate to live. Do you see that? He actually sets in motion, by way of decision, a way for him to live. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, a risen Christ tells his followers, It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. To all nations. And you know what? Here's the good news. That includes regretful Roman governors who are too afraid and too self-serving to stand up for what is right. And if there's been times in your life where you have been too afraid to stand up for what is right... Guess what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins is found for you also in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news this morning. In our text, look back, Luke 24, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, into the hands, and I expect that we could include Pilate's hands, the hands of a sinful man, and neither a bowl of water Nor anything else can make them clean. Only Jesus can make them clean. However, the big concern for Pilate, friends, on Easter Sunday, and not just for Pilate, but for you and for all of us, is not that you wash off the death of Christ, but that you're washed by the blood of Christ. That's what Easter's about. That's what Easter's about. The blood of Christ is not the sign of your sin. It is the solution to your sin. It's the solution. And even Pilate can find peace with God because of that truth. Hey, Pilate, I got good news for you. I know Friday was a bad day. I know you're in trouble with the missus. But it's Sunday morning, Pilate. The tomb is empty. And Jesus is alive. You know, we tend to focus on people who are named in the Easter text, Mary and Judas and Peter and Pilate. But, you know, there's people involved in the Easter story that are not even named. What about the guy who made the nails? somebody, Somebody forged nails. A blacksmith, he forged nails. He made the nails. Can you imagine hearing the story or maybe standing and observing the crucifixion And you knowing, and maybe others in the crowd, knowing that you're a blacksmith and you forge nails. You hammer out nails. Crucifixion tools. When there needs to be a crucifixion, they come to you. You're the supplier. Can you imagine that? An unknown and unnamed blacksmith seeing an an innocent man crucified by way of his craft. But that blacksmith is carrying what is not his to bear, at least not in its entirety, right? Remember that the message of the risen Christ fans out from this crowd to everybody, from the women to the disciples to the village people and on and on. And I fully expect that message went to the guy who made the nails. The nails that hammered the Savior of the world and the sin of the world to a cross. Now the good thing is, the nails held the sin, but they couldn't hold the Savior. Couldn't hold the Savior. That poor blacksmith who made the nails. But you know what? Let's call it like it is this morning. The responsibility is not entirely his. He did not really make the nails simply with his hands. He made the nails with his heart. And the sad news is, I made the nails too with my heart. And, and you made the nails too with your heart. And every one of us made the nails. And, and sadly, I am still making nails because I am still a sinner saved by grace. Grace. Because our potential gives way to sin and our sin separates us from God. But a risen Jesus means even those who still make nails, we no longer have to carry the burden of that sin. And even though we make the nails, we've also had the blessing of an Easter morning announcement He is risen. Graham Townsend writes, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We made the nails. And the nails aren't needed if we don't have a cross, are they? The cross. Uh, Today people find comfort in the cross. People get them in jewelry, wear them around their neck, get tattoos of them, hang them in their homes. Tozer says the cross is an upright altar. What a great picture. I like that. And when we think about the horror and the indignity and the agony of the cross, it points us to a much larger question. And a question that I've been asked many times as a pastor is this. Did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God do something different? After all, he is God. I want to share in just a few sentences the wonder and the genius of the cross in spite of its horror. The Bible tells us that God is completely righteous, true, he's right. And that's good news, amen? We like that the score is going to be settled one day and all the wrongs are going to be made right. We like that, that is powerful, knowing the overseer of the universe, by his unchanging nature, always does what is absolutely, totally right. And whether any of us agree with that or not, he is the standard for what is right. And we are not. We are sinners. We all do things, and we say things, and in the negative, we don't do things, right? Right? And we do that because we have this remarkable gift that's been given to us from God that we absolutely love, and that gift is called choice. We all all get to make our own choices for the most part, right? You're sitting here in this church today because you chose to get up and come. Now, maybe there's a few teenagers that were dragged. But most of you... Choose to come this morning. You can choose to sit here. You can choose not to listen. You get to choose. And sometimes we choose poorly. Now, thankfully, we're not as bad as we could be, right? But that's not the issue. We're not aligned with the standard of God. Now, God, who is just and righteous, he has made us to live in intimacy with him. But the sin issue is repulsive to a righteous God. He just can't tolerate that. Now, if God was singular in nature, friends, and he was only righteous, always right, always did the right thing, you and I would be in huge trouble. The world would be in huge trouble because not just the murderers and the really evil people, but because he is perfectly right, he would come along and say, you know what, I'm going to start over. I'm going to eradicate all of this. This is like a dot of black paint on white carpet that's just gone out of control. But he is righteous and just. We've said that. But he's not singular in his nature because not only is he righteous and just, he is also magnificently love. Isn't that great? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God lives with this dual nature and these two beautiful characteristics of God converge to find a solution for our sin and the sin of humankind because you cannot deal with it yourself. This is the equivalent of asking a, a dog that's been sprayed by a skunk to just not smell. Anybody had their dogs been sprayed by a skunk? I live out in the country. I got two dogs that get sprayed, right? And you can look at the dog and you can say, okay, dog, don't smell anymore. And the dog looks at you and goes, brrr, right? You cannot deal with your own sin. You're covered in it. It's pungent. You can't, you can't rid yourself of it. In and of yourself, you just cannot deal with it. God is love and he wants us to be freed from the guilt and the power of sin and the solution is the cross, the upright altar. My dad only bought one new car in his whole life that I know of. The driving abilities of my sister and myself discouraged him from buying another one. (laughs) The final blow to my dad's new Buick that he loved was when I was 16 years old and I shot out of the entrance of the Canadian tire on a busy highway where I grew up in Cambridge and was immediately T-boned by another car, an Oldsmobile. Both of these cars, you know, were like 30 feet long. Bam. His front end was smashed in. My dad's Buick was now doing a permanent left-hand turn. And guess what? The family that owned that Oldsmobile, they wanted things made right. They wanted justice. A car needed to be replaced, and justice was served. Now, thankfully, justice was not served by me. It was served by the economical mutual insurance company, who, at my dad's next renewal, were not quite so economical. (laughs) They made things right. That's what happens at the cross. Jesus, God's perfect, sinless Son, brings justice for a just God and steps in my place and in your place and makes things right. Oh, it's such a great story. But God shows his love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for, and you can put your name in there, for me. Finally, let me just mention Peter. Finally, Peter. Remember on the day of crucifixion, Peter, deserter, defeated, man of despair, right? He's the one he'd say who would tell Jesus, you know, a year before, hey, Jesus, whatever comes, I'm in, man. I'm in to the last moment. You can count on me. I'm Peter. Right? In fact, a year before up at Caesarea, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, wow, Peter, that kind of faith, wow, it's amazing. And undoubtedly, if Jesus knew there, which he spoke of, that he would go to the cross, he also knew there that Peter would fail him and fall on his face, and that this Resolute follower would actually turn out to be a bit of a failure. And if you go back to verse 12 of the text we've just read in Luke 24 there, look again at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and when he went home, marveling at what had happened. For some of this this morning, you may have missed everything I've said, but listen carefully to what I'm about to say right now. Peter rose and ran to the tomb because it was the run of the second chance. Did you hear that? This is the race of the second chance for Peter. If Jesus is alive, second chances are at hand. And he is alive. And they are at hand. When Peter had his colossal failure, his denial three times, he was standing warming himself at a charcoal fire. Anybody remember charcoal? When I was a kid, you know, we used to actually have have charcoal. Remember, we made burgers. When you used to go to Harvey's restaurant, they actually made their burgers over charcoal. Now everything's cooked over gas. How many can remember the smell of charcoal at a backyard barbecue as a kid? Some people still buy it because the flavor's so good. Peter's standing warming himself over a charcoal fire, and he say, hey, aren't you one of his guys? Hey, don't you know him? You're with him, aren't you? Three times, oh, that's not me. And he's standing there warming himself, and he denies the Lord. Did you know people can remember smells with 65% accuracy after a year, while visual recall is only about 50% after three months? If you think in your head, you can probably conjure up the smell maybe of your grandmother's house, or the outhouse camping, (laughs) or the turkey cooking this afternoon, right? Smell is so powerful. And research has shown us that smell, the sense of smell is actually the sense that is most linked to our emotional recollection, more than any other sense. 75% 75% of emotions are triggered by smell. Remember that. Now, Mark, he writes an additional piece of information about that tomb encounter. You know, when the angels speak to the women. Mark writes this. He says uh, that the angels say, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Uh, I want Peter to be assured he's still in. So you go tell the disciples, but don't forget to tell Peter. Peter. Because he's a failure, and he's fallen on his face, and he's lived through this weekend with despair. Go and tell Peter that, he will, that Jesus is going to go up before them and he'll see them in Galilee. Now, that doesn't stop Peter from making a run for the tomb, right? Because second chances are so sweet. However, if we go to John 21, I won't ask you to turn there for time, they do go back up to Galilee, which is home for them. Wondering what now? And Peter decides when all else is unclear, go back to what you know. For Peter, it's fishing. And even that is a total flop, right? And as the sun rises over Galilee and they come into shore, there's a man on the beach and he tells them, recast your nets. And they do, and the nets are full. And John says to Peter, Hey, Peter, it's Jesus on the beach. And Peter's run of the second chance becomes the swim of the second chance. And he jumps out of the boat and he swims. I've sat in a boat half a dozen times in that spot on the Sea of Galilee and looked over to the little church that sits on that spot. And not one time have I ever sat there and tears have not poured down my face. It's the spot of the second chance. And he gets up onto the beach and Jesus is cooking breakfast. Now listen, church, if you ever wondered if Jesus cares about your daily needs, he's cooking breakfast for his disciples. And he walks up there to that breakfast, cooking, and Jesus is cooking over a what? Charcoal fire. And the smell of Friday's failure wafts up in his nose. but it's the second chance. It's the glorious second chance. The gut-churning emotion of failure rises up in his throat, but at the end of breakfast, Jesus talks right to Peter, and the only concern of Jesus is Peter's love for him, his trust of him, even though it's so flawed. And Jesus takes a deserter and a failure and assures him he's a disciple and he's a follower with a future. Friends, this is the Easter story. It's the death of defeat and the pain of yesterday gives rise to Christ's plan and power in your life today. And like Peter, you may be a product of the old self, right? But Christ releases us from being a prisoner to the old self. It's great news. Christ says, I can deliver you from whatever is in your past and I'll put you back together again and you'll journey with me every step, just like Peter. And the smell of the fire of defeat and despair may be all too familiar this morning, but this is not to slam you. It's to show you how great God's love is for you. See, the fog of Good Friday is the clarity of Easter Sunday. Let me say this and I'm done. A risen Jesus, friends, is the world's second chance. Listen, and he's your second chance. Can I ask you this morning, have you taken hold of your second chance? Have you taken hold of your second chance? I I don't care what's happened back there in your life, where you've been, what you've done. Have you taken hold of your second chance in Jesus? And if so, if you're here this morning, and you have, I want to ask you this. Are you living in the center of your second chance with the assurance that Jesus is you, yours and you are his? In the center of the second chance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that Good Friday... The fog of failure and confusion and desperation in our lives is made clear on Sunday morning that we too live in this story, the story of the great second chance. If there's some here this morning, one here this morning, Father, that's not grabbed hold of their second chance in Jesus, I pray they would do that. I'd love to talk to them about that. Father God, you are great and good and we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.